Well, good morning once again. Uh, it's funny because I just finished uh, chapter four of the Yoga Sutra of Pantanjali, The Extraordinary Powers. And um, me and the wife were just sitting down and uh, I actually enjoy um, what I call uh, explaining Joe Rogan. Um, because uh, the gentleman is, is great. He's bringing a lot of uh, um, new science and ideas to light. Uh, but, you know, the Internet, uh, short format, it's difficult to get really uh, important concepts, <clears throat> get them out and explained properly, and more importantly, uh, prevent um, miscommunication. I mean, and that's what tends to be a big... Um, uh, hurdle and even maybe roadblock uh, for disseminating Dharma or the teachings um, because uh, you tend to be more worried not just of getting it wrong yourself but even in my case where I mean I'm pretty careful not to get something wrong myself but you're just as worried that someone might misunderstand right but so on that line, here we're going to listen to Andrew Huberman, who is a neuroscientist, uh, specializes in, well, I guess modern science even, um, related to um, plasticity, neuroplast brain plasticity, but neuroplasticity, uh, regeneration, uh, brain development, um, and, and so I'll just let him explain it, and then uh, I'll explain why this is apropos. Uh, and, and just perfect timing. Literally, we just finished uh, the previous podcast uh, minutes ago. So I'm a neuroscientist. I'm meaning I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology, Stanford School of Medicine. So I run a laboratory. I teach a little bit. I teach neuroanatomy to medical students. But mainly my lab does research. So I've got students and postdocs, and we're trying to figure out the answers to two problems. The first problem is how to regenerate the damaged nervous system, in particular the connections between the eye and the brain to restore vision to the blind. So that's a big mission of ours. And to prevent vision loss in people that are losing their vision. And the other thing that we're doing is we're focusing a lot on stress and other states of mind. So I'm obsessed with the idea that all our states of mind come from the brain and the body. And we're trying to figure out what happens in the brain and body when we're stressed and how to control it. What happens in the brain and body when we are creative and how to control it. And essentially for all states of mind. But rather than try and tackle the really high level stuff like flow and states of awe, we're really focused on these states of stress and things like focus and the ability to think clearly and do certain things athletically or cognitively. Because first of all, there's a lot of suffering. There are a lot of people out there that are suffering from an inability to control their states of mind. And also there's great potential for people who aren't suffering to be able to create and perform and do better things once we can understand how those states come about. That's an interesting way of putting it, suffering because they can't control their states of mind. Um, that, that is the case, but that's not like a politically correct way of uh, describing it. I guess I never thought about that. Would that be accurate? Well, I think it's fair to say that all our states of mind and body, and I say mind and body because the nervous system, which is the brain, the spinal cord, and all that stuff, it connects to our body, mm -hmm. and our bo body connects to our brain. So we can't really separate those. But states of mind, which include the stuff in our skull and the body, those essentially dictate our whole life experience, right? So whether or not we're feeling calm, 
when we want to be calm, whether or not we're feeling stressed when we'd rather be calm, whether or not we are feeling focused when we need to do work, or whether or not we're feeling creative when we want to be creative. All of that stems from the nervous system. The other organs are, of the body are involved, but the nervous system, the brain and those connections, is really what it's about. So if you see somebody who's in a state of depression, or you see somebody who's in a state of flow and creativity, you can be pretty sure that that's reflecting the activity of neurons in the brain. It's um, the, the idea that the body and the brain are inseparable. Um, most people who are physically active accept that and, and appreciate that, and, and they know that this is probably true. But there's a lot of people that kind of want to deny that and concentrate only on the brain. And particularly, like, there's psychiatrists that will prescribe medication before they'll prescribe exercise. And this is, uh, it's, it's a controversial subject. That's what I meant by saying, like, that you're, you are unable to control aspects of, of, of your brain or aspects of the way you're viewing things or the way you feel about things. But Yeah, so I think if we take a step back and we just kind of think about what the brain and nervous system does, and again, nervous system includes all of it, we can say the brain is special, right? This brain, there is something fundamentally important about the brain part because it's somebody who, let's say, has a limb amputated, it doesn't fundamentally change who they are. It can change what they can do, but there, and there will be aspects of their personality and temperament that might shift. But who they are hasn't changed. Whereas if someone has a brain lesion or their brain is degenerating, that person is fundamentally different. So there is something special about the real estate in our skulls. But that said, the job of the brain is really to combine our experience of what's going on in our body with what's going on in our mind and to react and behave to things in an adaptive way. So um, if I may, there's just sort of like, if we take a step back and just think, there are basically five things that the nervous system is responsible for doing. First is sensation. Sensation is non-negotiable. It's happening all the time. Sound waves are coming in. Your feet are in contact with your shoes or the floor. That's all happening, and you can't control it because we have sensors, things in our eye, our tongue, our nose, our skin, our ears, that take physical events in the universe. Photons of light, sound waves, touch, you know, physical pressure on the skin. And it transforms that into one language. And the language is the language of electricity of neurons. Now, perception is the next thing that the brain does. And perception is all about which sensations we are conscious of. So if I say, you know, the contact of your hands with the table, now you're conscious of it. That's just your perceptual window. It's like a spotlight. It just goes straight to your hands. So there's sensation, perception. And then there are these things we call emotions which are brain-body states. They tend to make us either want to get up and move or stay still. They tend to make us think, this is a good place for me to be at mentally and physically or I want to shift this. And then there are thoughts, which we could discuss in detail if you want, which kind of arise spontaneously. They're kind of running in the background all the time, like pop-up windows on a badly filtered internet connection. But we can also deliberately have a thought. Like I can say, that pad of paper to my right is yellow. I can decide that. In the same way, I can do the fifth thing, which is an action. So you've got sensations, perceptions, feelings slash emotions, thoughts and actions. And all five of those include the brain and the body. But how much brain and how much body mm. is shifted by a kind of underlying, let's just think of it as a tide, like the level of the tide, and that's the autonomic nervous system. So if I'm suddenly stressed for whatever reason, my perceptual window is gonna shift. My eyes are literally gonna change their focus my world will become more like portrait mode. I'll see you and everything else will become blurry. When I'm calm, I actually have panoramic vision. I can see everything around me. So I better. So 
my state, my internal state of alertness or sleepiness impacts all this. And in sleep, which is kind of the opposite extreme of stress, I'm not in relation to anything outside me. I'm not perceiving anything. I'm sensing things, non-negotiable. I'm not having real thoughts, but the thoughts are kind of disoriented in space and time. And behavior is done. You're lying down. You're sometimes paralyzed in sleep. So when I say state, it's really about this dynamic shift between what we're perceiving and how we're perceiving it. And we could go really in-depth in this or not, but states of mind are fundamentally, I think, the, to me anyway, are the most important aspect of trying to understand how the brain works. Because ultimately, if you want to understand mental illness and mental health, if you want to understand high performance, which is something my lab is really interested in, if you want to understand any of that, you have to understand how these states of mind and body relate because the autonomic nervous system, which is strongly impacting these states, is in the body. It, in, it is, the basis of it is connections between the brain and body. All right, well, I want to let that go way longer than I should have, but he hit on so many little points. So first he was talking about how we're the source of our own suffering. <clears throat> and, uh, of course, there you go again, Joe kind of derails that. I mean, he should say, well, geez, that seems to be uh, the tenant of many philosophies. But he goes on, uh, Andrew uh, goes on and talks about um, these five different um, conditions, talking about how the body relates to our external world, how the mind relates to the external world, and how the mind relates to the body. I really love how they talk about how the mind-body connection cannot be separated. And this is something that I've spoken of. I mean, there's so much that we just spoke of, but let's talk about that first. Um, as I said, uh, originally Bodhidharma uh, came uh, um, bearing gifts of the Dharma and a martial way. So exercise and, 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 and being healthy. Same as what we were discussing here, that yoga um, is about awareness, it is about uh, meditation, but it also talks about breathing, like he said. He talks about <clears throat> being healthy in body so that we uh, can uh, seek that, that liberation more effectively. Uh, he goes on and also talks about... Um, uh, interestingly, he talks about all the different consciousnesses. Uh, so in, it's almost as if he was talking the Abhidharma, right? You got your ear consciousness, your nose consciousness, your eye consciousness, and he said that as well, 100% exactly like uh, the Abhidharma, which was written, I don't know, about 2,000 years ago, 1,700 to 2,000 years ago. Um, and then he goes on and talks about what we were talking about in the last chapter of Pantanjali, that... Okay, so twofold, these extraordinary powers. There's one when he was talking about the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is kind of like when you uh, don't um, have the, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I mean, we don't have the ability to be aware of everything. So there's a lot of things that are on autopilot uh, as designed, right? Like your heart, we don't control how fast it beats and all that jazz, right? We do have control over, like I said, the breathing. We have control over our perceptions. We have control of our reactions. And again, he spoke to all of that. Uh, and then finally, um, as I said, he was speaking about um, these extraordinary powers. So once you 
are able to bring your focus your, or your awareness to all things at hand. You're no longer subject or, as he says, um, unaware of things as simple as your hand on the table, right? But more importantly, as he said, if you're feeling anxious or you're depressed or you're angry, by using that insight, um, awareness, uh, calm and insight is two sides of the coin, by using that insight, you can actually look at the nature of your anxiety. And when it's rootless, it has no power over you. So once again, it, the other side of this extraordinary powers is not magical, not superhuman, um, but arguably feats of spectacular human ability. Because... As I said in the previous podcast, we tend to run at our best 60% of our full capacity, right? So when we are able to become fully aware or we're able to get in, as he said, like the flow state, like my uh, podcast from a few episodes prior when I spoke of Chong Su or I, before that spoke of the Yi Jing, flow has to do with focus, being in the moment, being present. And it's not a matter of having extra powers. It's a matter of being able to apply all of one's abilities to the task at hand. So you have, um, you know, extreme power, but it's natural power that we all hobble with our own delusions, our own self-imposed suffering, right? By telling us, you can't do that, or, you know, you're not worthy, or... I just love how this... Uh, and I do. Again, I apologize that I let it go a little longer than uh, I would have liked. But, again, um, Andrew Huberman on the Joe Rogan Experience, that's 1513. Um, it looks like I would highly recommend that you watch this. Uh, because just like uh, one of my very first podcasts, the reasons why I started this um, was this uh, this coalescence of science and uh, philosophy. Now, what we're seeing today is the Abhidharma and psychology, 2,000 years apart, um, giving the exact same prescription to reducing our suffering. Our, uh, our lot, our human experience. Um, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, so there are two states that, like, we can take that whole um, tangle of mess that I just, you know, uh, threw out on the table and, and simplified and say, look, there are two states that I think, if we could really crack, we could really understand the underlying neural mechanisms and we could understand how people could get themselves into these two states, we would greatly improve human health and human performance. It, cognitively and physically. Okay. And those two states are the, the state of sleep. So not just the importance of sleep. I know you had Matt on here, so uh, you're a great sleep researcher. Not just that sleep is important, but how to get better at sleeping, how to access sleep. So if you, a lot of people struggle with that. And the other state is clear, calm, focused. Those two states for my lab right now are the target states. With, you know, there's so many states, but if we can figure out how those work and how to Put, allow people to put themselves into those states, I think it's my belief that we'll do humankind a great service. Okay. 
Oh, okay, we won't go any further on that one. Because now you see why I was sharing the Bardolf the Duel. Uh, it was apropos, considering we'd had a loss. But more importantly, it's a guidebook for the living as much as the dying. So here he's talking about two major states that he's, again, he's, he's concentrated on. And I don't disagree that these are possibly two of some of the more important states. Now, I do hope I've explained the Bardos, which are the between states, or just these states. The Tibetans, Tantric, Buddhists, Yogacar, uh, they believe that there are these six states. Okay, there's three in life and three in the between. The three in life, he's kind of mentioned. there, But the Tibetans say the awake, the asleep, and then the between. Half awake, half sleep. I, I pardon my oversimplification here. And this is what he's talking about. So there's the awake state. There's the asleep state both of which the Tibetans do feel there is great power in each one of these states. They also agree it is mandatory that you have control not only over these states, but within them themselves. Science even discusses our alpha, beta, and theta, delta. I can't remember the exact names. I think it's uh, alpha, delta, and theta. Right? So we have these different states, and they've studied when there's this flow state, that these people are in this different state. This bardo, this flow state, is kind of an in-between, between being what we call awake, which is arguably an oxymoron, the in-between state of neither awake nor asleep, and then the actual sleep state. And as he says, we're a little bit out of ourselves. I find it funny how it actually coincides with his earlier discussion that our mind is this construct put together of our disparate pieces. You take away uh, our mind's capacity and you see a change in the bundle. If you take away one of the little pieces, um, right, arguably he mentioned, you know, an arm. But, I mean, you could take away someone, uh, a portion of their identity, like what they do for a living. And uh, that person essentially wouldn't change. So, here we are looking, earlier it was the mind-body connection uh, and how it related uh, to this extraordinary uh, powers uh, or states related to these states. Now here we see the Bardo Thedul, the, the Tibetan uh, book of uh, uh, natural liberation in the between, right? These states of sleep and awake and meditation, focus, awareness state, this flow state is exactly what he's speaking of. Your pupils dilate. When your pupils dilate, the optics of your world changes, and you are looking at the visual world, which is space, physical space, and you start slicing time differently. If you've ever been stressed, it feels like things are taking forever. Mm -hmm. That's because your body is sending your brain more signals per unit time. It's saying, like, 
my body's active, my body's active, my body's active, my body's active. Think about when you're drowsy, your body is sending fewer signals to the brain per unit time. And what ends up happening is the brain uses physical space and uses these signals from the body. We know this from neural recordings to start creating a space-time relationship. The space-time relationship really says, let's just take the jujitsu example, even though I've never done jujitsu. You're trying to figure out where do I place my hand, where's my grip, how do I move my leverage, what am I going to do when you're trying to sequence things, it's duration, path, and outcome. In sleep, the forebrain essentially shuts off. There's some other things that happen too, of course. And the brain starts to drift and idle into these states that where duration path and outcome analyses become impossible. We also put people into deeply relaxed states. So we're studying three different ways to do that. One is hypnosis, which is not like, you know, charm hypnosis, stage hypnosis, but medical hypnosis. My colleague David Spiegel in the Department of Psychiatry is kind of world expert in hypnosis for pain management, etc., trauma. You can put people into hypnotic states, which are very sleep-like. They're a little different than sleep, but they're like a shallow stage of sleep. We also use particular patterns of breathing or respiration to bring people into states that are sort of like sleep. It's like a very shallow level of sleep, but they're completely immobile. Or in some cases, we've, we've studied things like more traditional forms of meditation, although that's less the focus these days. What we find is that the brain can go into states where duration, path, and outcome, you know, cognitive processing, physical activity is impossible, and the brain starts to show wave-like activity that's very similar to sleep. And what I didn't tell you is that we also have people do a cognitive task. So while they're in a very stressful environment, like with heights or the beating bum. Okay. So he goes on. Uh, this is uh, about, well, not about, it's uh, uh, 29.55. So 30 minutes in to the Joe Rogan Experience 1513 with uh, Andrew Huberman. He goes on and continues to talk about these restorative states. So I just thought we might highlight, once again, the Bardos. So, he's using hypnosis, which is just getting into that in-between state. The trance state, the meditation state, the focus state, the flow state, right? And uh, breathing, used in the Hindu tradition, used in Tibetan yoga, pranayama. Uh, it's just, again getting into that meditation, focus, awareness, flow state. And thirdly, they use some traditional... No, well, of course, they don't use that as much because depending on who taught them the meditation, it isn't as effective as probably what they're doing in the first place, which is both insight and calm, right? They're having the people focus on something and remain calm. There's your Shamatha and your Vipassana. Right, and he goes on and talks about <clears throat> what uh, what a restorative state um, this sleep state is, and then this in between state, and then he goes on and talks about as you heard, but he'll he'll continue to talk about this how sleep state we give up our cause you know effect outcome right arguably we can actually relax we're no longer uh, in constant fear as we normally are either naturally or unnaturally like in the modern world with anxieties and uh, deadlines and uh, taxi cabs and you know jaywalking 
So he goes on and says that when we can shut off, shut off what? We can shut off us. He says, soon as we stop worrying about us, what our desires, our outcomes, our actions, our uh, cause and effect, when we can actually shut off and just be without the us, he says it's immediately a transformative and healing state. This bardo, this between state, between being awake and asleep, has similar benefits to sleep. But he says, sleep itself. Sleep itself is necessary and healing because we shut off the ego. So follow me on this. We stop worrying about us and them and outcome and, you know, is our house going to be uh, okay in the storm? And, you know, am I going to get the promotion? Is, you know, is my... we stop worrying about us and we can just be at one with whatever happens to be. Sure, we may dream, but arguably, it's funny that the dreams we remember are the ego ones, so, and, and uh, dreams that we do remember are usually but minutes of our experience dreaming. So, what about all those other hundreds of minutes when we are sleeping, like you said, in a very deep, restorative type sleep? Are we just not being ourselves? Are we free of the ego? Do we experience that actual, you know, ego delete that we talk about, we want to experience? And I go one step further and posit that since this restorative sleep is mandatory for our survival, I argue that if we can't get a break from our own ego, it's fatal. Okay, well, on this next uh, segment, I want to remind us the first line of Chapter 4 of the Yoga Sutra of Pantanjali, Freedom. It starts with, The attainments brought about by integration may also arise at birth through the use of herbs, from intonations, or through austerity. Sleep-like states can be very restorative. I imagine that um, you mentioned the float tank earlier, like maybe float tanks, and we could talk about why the float tank would put you into a pseudo sleep-like state. Certain substances put us into sleep-like states. Naps and just letting the mind drift can put us into sleep-like states. And those sleep-like states do two things that are very powerful. One is they reset our ability to do these very taxing, demanding, duration path outcome kind of brain functions. As well, they allow people to access sleep more easily. You know, so we want people to be able to get into deep sleep because nothing is as restorative as deep sleep because in deep sleep and in the states that I'm talking about, these rela deeply relaxed states, duration path outcome analyses are impossible. And I think being able to toggle back and forth between these states is really where high performance emerges. So for the very stressed human being who's suffering from generalized anxiety, we study those types of patients. But... In addition, for people who are doing well in life but are high performers, so we do some work with elite military, with some athletes, 
We've had David Goggins out to the lab. Um, we're talking about you can't he, use him. You can't. Okay, perfect spot to stop. Now, when I mention the 60% rule, that's who they're talking about, David Goggins. He's, uh, he's an individual that is uh, more than the sum of his parts. The man had two holes in his heart, and he still ran um, you know, 200-mile marathons and achieved. But what, what is he talking about here? What he's talking about is being able to get into this flow state. This incredibly restorative. Um, so can I just boil this down and say that what he's talking about is not just the sleep state. Sleep state is the ultimate uh, in healing state where you shut off that ego and you truly just be one with, uh, say, the Tao. I mean, it doesn't matter the word that you choose. Uh, secondly, as he says, becoming proficient with uh, being able to uh, integrate this skill of uh, awareness, of focus, of calm. Being able to get into those states more efficiently, more effectively, more comfortably is even more restorative and more healing. And then he talks about that it's healing for those with anxiety. Why? Because like we discussed before, you look at the root of your anxiety and why you're feeling anxious. If you follow, uh, as they say, the dependent origination, you'll see that it's, it's rootless. And then it's just, your, once again, your ego causing uh, needless suffering. Same can be said for high-functioning individuals or as we read um, chapter... Uh, was it three, the extraordinary powers? The extraordinary powers are not um, superhuman powers. They're simply us achieving uh, more than we uh, would ever give ourselves credit for. And, and they give a couple of examples. And as I said, this gentleman, David Goggins, um, his goal and his, uh, his opponent uh, was to to overcome himself and to prove his own limitations were self-imposed. Yeah. All right, so we'll go back to chapter 2 of the Yoga Sutra of Pantanjali, and it says, line 7, in the path to realization, attachment is a residue of pleasant experience. Aversion is a residue of suffering. Clinging to life is instinctive and self perpetuating even for the wise. And now here's the point. In their subtle form, these causes of suffering are subdued by seeing where they come from. In their gross form, as a pattern of consciousness, they are subdued through meditative absorption. Those are those different states we discussed. And then finally in line 12, the causes of suffering are the root source of actions. Each action deposits latent impressions deep in the mind, to be activated and experienced later in this birth or lie hidden awaiting for a future one. So so as long as this root source exists, its contents will ripen into a birth, a life, an experience. So what, once again, Andrew's talking about, so here at 32 minutes and 9 seconds, allow people to go there often are 
fear states, anxiety states, things that are extremely high pressure. Because the, the adult brain especially doesn't want to change. You know, we're basically born, we get wired up by our experience, we get wired up by what we're exposed to. Brain plasticity is very passive for the first 25 years of life. You know, I, um, if you're a child, you, the things you hear and see and do are shaping you. Right? Mm -hmm. Kids come home saying things they've never even heard before. It's amazing. Right. And as an adult, you have to crack into that neural circuitry and reshape it. And yeah, why is that? What, what is it about adults? Because I have my own theory, and this is a, just a, a martial arts-based theory. Young kids learn so fast. They learn so fast. But I always feel like it's because they don't have jobs. They don't have a family to take care of. They don't have a girlfriend who's on their back. They don't have bills and the IRS breathing down their neck. They don't have anything. So they can just... Of the top contour and... Well, Does that make sense? That no, absolutely. What you just described is a, is a beautiful description of the top contour and below that what's happening is in, in childhood, the whole brain is literally more plastic because there's more space for the neurons to move around and make mm. new connections. The whole environment, the chemicals that are swirling around in there are set for plasticity because we were basically designed to come into the world and be customized to our experience. I mean, if the human animal is exceptionally good at any one thing, it's that. So if you're an adult, say if you're a 35-year-old man with a family or a 35-year-old woman with a family and a job and you want to learn a new skill, what is the best way to force your brain to accept these new patterns and learn this quickly? By attacking two separate parts of a process. Neuroplasticity is not an event. It's a process and it has two parts. The first one is, if you want to learn and change your brain as an adult, there has to be a high level of focus and engagement. There's absolutely no way around this because, so focus and intensity and that kind of the, the Goggins phenotype, right? I think Goggins is now a noun, a verb, and a pronoun, right? It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> so if you're going to Goggins this process, what you need to do is you need to, regardless of how agitated you feel, you have to lean in. All right, so I just wanted to step back a minute. Um, because uh, Joe Rogan once again jumped in a little too early and he missed a very important part of uh, a very important part of um, the human condition. And, and uh, when he talks about the fact that a human being is designed to learn and absorb, and it's absolutely true, just by our simple physiology and uh, our, our rearing, our nurturing, our pre and postnatal existence. Um, we're born uh, incredibly helpless as little infants, unlike any other of the primates. And why? Because we have this incredible brain that actually doesn't develop uh, fully until actually, like he says, until we get older. So uh, yogic thought states that um, uh, the reason why we're not as uh, flexible, Plast that's what the plasticity is talking about, why we're not as flexible as adults is because we have so many of these latent impressions and we're so jaded and biased. Uh, duality, uh, like uh, the Chinese like to see it. Um, and so he'll go on now and he's going to talk a little further about um, uh, how you attack uh, this... Um, mind, this older mind that is stuck, um, uh, being maybe less placid uh, or uh, more uh, filled up 
or uh, just, uh, you know, uh, jaded by all sorts of latent uh, impressions from a life lived um, not fully aware. By attacking two separate parts of a process. Neuroplasticity is not an event. It's a process and it has two parts. The first one is, if you want to learn and change your brain as an adult, there has to be a high level of focus and engagement. There's absolutely no way around this because, so focus and intensity and that kind of the, the Goggins phenotype, right? I think Goggins is now a noun, a verb, and a pronoun, right? It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> so if you're going to Goggins this process, what you need to do is you need to, regardless of how agitated you feel, you have to lean in and focus extremely hard. Now, the reason for that is that there's a neurochemical norepinephrine, also called adrenaline, same thing, that's released in the brain and body. Most people back off at that point because they feel this agitation. But we have to remember that that noradrenaline was designed to get us into movement. That's the purpose of noradrenaline, to take us out of stillness and into movement. And then the other thing we have to do is we have to take that elevated level of alertness and we have to focus it. And there's a second neuromodulator called acetylcholine which is secreted from this little structure in the base of the forebrain when we visually focus on something. Or in the case of maybe if you're doing auditory learning when you focus with your auditory attention. Can I pause you there for a second? Yeah. So acetylcholine, you could take in a supplement, and norepinephrine, you can actually get from uh, float, uh, I, I... By attacking two separate parts of a process. Neuroplasticity is not an event. It's a process and it has two parts. The first one is, if you want to learn and change your brain as an adult, there has to be a high level of focus and engagement. There's absolutely no way around this because, so focus and intensity and that kind of the, the Goggins phenotype, right? I think Goggins is now a noun, a verb, and a pronoun, right? It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> so if you're going to Goggins this process, what you need to do is you need to, regardless of how agitated you feel, you have to lean in and focus extremely hard. Now, the reason for that is that there's a neurochemical norepinephrine, also called adrenaline, same thing, that's released in the brain and body. Most people back off at that point because they feel this agitation. But we have to remember that that noradrenaline was designed to get us into... Okay, so I'm sorry I jumped back, but I thought it was important that we listen to that again because, again, uh, Joe's going to jump off and, and miss two very important things. So one, the they missed points themselves. So the Goggins effect is also a matter of resting in this uncomfort state, this discomfort state. <laughs> Once again here, this co coalescence rears its head again. So this belief that how we can learn to integrate any sort of teaching, any new skill, is by um, pushing ourselves not just into a state of discomfort, or as he says, uh, the adrenaline state, um, but residing in that discomfort state, as Goggins himself will state. Now, once again, another missed point is that, arguably, that is why children are so plastic, because they arguably are always experiencing new states. So they're always arguably what we would uh, classify as discomfort. But again, as taught in some earlier podcasts, it's this adult mind that makes judgments as to what's good or bad. And again, it's these latent impressions that leaves uh, aversion or attachment.
right? Whereas this child mind arguably uh, is absent of these judgments, um, including whether they're comfortable or not. So, again, we'll move on now. Just of noradrenaline to take us out of stillness and into movement. And then the other thing we have to do is we have to take that elevated level of alertness and we have to focus it. And there's a second neuromodulator called acetylcholine, which is secreted from this little structure in the base of the forebrain when we visually focus on something. Or in the case of maybe if you're doing auditory learning when you focus with your auditory attention. Can I... Before he pulls this off, because there was another thing here. This is very important. This is also another point that I've made in other podcasts. That making an offering, mantras, repeating the name of a Buddha or a deity, uh, devotion, um, whatever practice, as he says, visual, auditory, it... Again, and he doesn't understand how this works. If the mind is constantly confused by all of this data coming in from all these different consciousness, the eye conscious and the ear consciousness, then it makes perfect sense that we're either unaware, because we tune it out, or we're unable to be aware of all of it. Right? So the point is, is... What we're trying to do is get into that meditative state. Like he says, insight, so you're focusing on something. Calmness, you've got to remain calm, right? Well, what are you doing? If you're unable, this is where people sit on cushions, or they use a mantra, like repeating Amitofo, or they might, you know, Om Mani Padme Om. They might, um, honestly, they might count... Uh, a japa or mala. Um, there's an, they might prostrate. They might bow. They might walk. They might dance even. The idea is our ability to use any action to focus and harness that awareness. That awareness that, as he says, is regenerative and healing. And it is at the heart of our ability to learn new things adapt, overcome, and is at the heart of what uh, has created um, this creature that needs to uh, be raised by loving parents uh, for years, longer than any other uh, creature, because we have this, um, this aptitude, this potential to be far more than the sum of our parts. Right. Well, I'll end this uh, segment here. Um, we're only like thirty some minutes into the video, uh, but uh, Andrew Huberman just uh, mentioned the Goggins effect, uh, and that's uh, the reason why. That's where we're going to leave it here. As the Goggins effect of being able to harness these uh, super mundane states to achieve uh, more than we would think uh, is humanly possible. Uh, but let's go back one last time to these uh, super mundane states that we're talking about, or bardos, between states. And I'm going to quote from the root verses 
uh, of the six intermediate states. And I'm just going to read about the first three states. Alas, now as the intermediate state of living arises before me, renouncing laziness, for which there is no time in this life, I must enter the undistracted path of study, reflection, and meditation. Taking perceptual experience and the nature of mind as the path, I must cultivate actualization of the three Buddha bodies. Now, having obtained a precious human body this one time, I do not have the luxury of remaining on a distracted path. Alas, now as the intermediate state of dreams arises before me, renouncing the corpse-like, insensitive sleep of delusion, I must enter, free from distracting memories, the state of abiding nature of reality. Cultivating the experience of inner radiance through the recognition, emanation, and transformation of dreams, I must not sleep like a beast, but cherish the experiential cultivation which mingles sleep with actual realization. Alas, now as the intermediate state of meditative concentration arises before me. And I'll repeat. Alas, now as the intermediate state of meditative concentration arises before me, renouncing the mass of distractions and confusions, I must undistractedly enter a state which is devoid of subjective apprehension and free from the two extremes and attain stability in the stages of generation and perfection. At this moment, having renounced activity and having attained a singular concentration, I must not fall under the sway of bewildering mental afflictions. So that was the first half of the root verses. The second half speaks of the three Bartles uh, in the between. Uh, there's the time of death and the between state, uh, and then there's the rebirth state. Not really apropos. Um, so I thought... What would be apropos would be to finish on the common preliminary practice uh, from, again, the Bardothadu, which is the book of uh, liberation in the between states, the book of natural liberation in the between. Um, the common practices are for the living. It's to teach us how to be prepared for those intermediate states uh, after living, but more importantly, how to harness these super mundane states uh, while living. So... Alas, fortunate child of Buddha nature, do not be oppressed by the forces of ignorance and delusion, but rise up now with resolve and courage. Entranced by ignorance from beginningless time until now, you have had more than enough time to sleep. So do not slumber any longer, but strive after virtue with body, speech, and mind. Are you oblivious to the sufferings of birth, old age, sickness, and death, there is no guarantee that you will survive even past this very day. The time has come for you to develop perseverance in your practice. For at this singular opportunity, you could attain the everlasting bliss of nirvana. And so now is certainly not the time to sit idly, but starting with the reflection on death, you should bring your practice to completion. The moments of our life are not expendable. 
and the possible circumstances of death are beyond imagination. If you do not achieve in an undaunted confident security now, what point is there in your being alive, O living creature? All phenomena are ultimately selfless, empty, and free from conceptual elaboration. In their dynamic, they resemble an illusion, mirage, dream, or reflected image. A celestial city, an echo, a reflection of the moon and water, a bubble, an optical illusion, or an intangible emanation. You should know that all things of cyclic existence and nirvana accord in nature with these ten similes of illusory phenomena. All phenomena are naturally uncreated. They neither abide nor cease, neither come nor go. They are without objective, referent, signless, ineffable, and free from thought. The time has come for this truth to be realized. Alas, how needing of compassion are those living beings, tortured by their past actions, who are drowning in this deep chasm, the engulfing ocean of their past actions. Such is the nature of the fluctuating cyclic existence. Grant your blessings so that this ocean of sufferings may run dry. How needing of compassion are those who are skillless, those who are tortured by ignorance and past actions, those who indulge in actions conducive to suffering, even though they desire happiness, grant your blessings so that the obscuration of dissident mental states and past actions may be purified. And it goes on and on, just telling us essentially that, that we are the root cause of our suffering, and at the same time, the source of that suffering is also the source of our liberation.